Hey, Joel. What's up, Tim? I don't understand this movie. They use an old Commodore 64 to be able to simulate global thermonuclear war. I can't even get it to play Oregon Trail without someone dying of dysentery. Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and sometimes nonsensical way pop culture and nuclear issues interact. We watch a movie or a TV show and then needlessly overanalyze it. I'm Tim Westmeyer. I am a nuclear enthusiast who has studied the history and policy of nuclear weapons and nuclear energy for about 10 years. I've also been told by friends and family I'm an annoying person to watch movies with if they have nuclear topic as a plot device. I nitpick everything usually get hushed out of the theater. But that's why I have my esteemed co-host to bring balance to the universe. This is Joel, a well-intentioned movie enthusiast who knows nothing about nuclear issues, but I love a good movie. And I love to talk about it afterwards. And today, we watched War Games. Is it a game or is it real? This is a 1983 classic uh, Cold War sci-fi movie directed by John Badham, uh, who, another guy who also directed classics such as Saturday Night Fever and Short Circuit, another one of my favorite movies, um, showing the horror of that is technology and what it can do when it runs amok. But uh, it's a pretty fun movie. Uh, it did pretty well. Uh, $12 million budget. Uh, came out to be about $80 million in the domestic box office. Won three Academy Awards, including cinematography, writing, and sound. And Roger Ebert thought it was four out of four stars. Masterpiece. Rotten Tomatoes gives it about a 93%. Seems like it did pretty well. Spawned a couple of video games, which is funny because the movie is about a video game that then causes a nuclear war. So it's a movie about a video game that caused a video game based off of that. Um, came out on the ColecoVision and the Atari and the, the PlayStation later on. And then also spawned a fun sequel, directed dvd in 2008, uh, War Games The Dead Code. So clearly this movie left a big impression on a lot of different people. No, I agree. I, I think one of the things to note is just how it is an enduring kind of pop culture reference uh, when it comes to technology and technology meeting kind of real life and, and humans not really understanding how to interact with the technology and really being afraid of, of the implication and consequences if technology runs amok and takes over. Well, yeah, it's one of the first movies that really has hackers as an influence. It seemed like the, the writers for this did a lot of research on hacker culture and what it meant to like, – how do you – how does someone – manipulate technology like that and they they developed a profile that there was a lot of young people that were using computers in new ways the idea of a home computer was very new in in before 1983 so people that had these things they looked like you know youth terrorists essentially with the kind of amazing things that people could be able to do yeah and it seems like i think we've all seen tv shows or movies especially where you know, some new technology is some kind of threat uh, to humanity or, or an organization or something, and, and youth is somehow involved in that, in that it's not a 85-year-old who has the newest computer technology and, and causes a problem, but it's often a young person who understands the technology better than the adults, and that's mm. what causes the problems. And I, ca I honestly can't think of a, a movie prior to War Games where that was really the case. Um, I mean... I'd have to go back and look at Tron, uh, where that was, you know, somewhat of a younger person. But I mean, it, 
this in my mind is the quintessential young movie with technology, knowing how the technology works or understanding it better than anyone, mm. uh, showing the adults in the room who, who don't really know what they're doing, you know, the, the errors of their ways. Well, it would be fun to see this movie remade nowadays with your 80-year-old or 70-year-old grandfather that accidentally downloads a virus onto the computer, and that's what causes <laughs> World War III. I got III. an email. Yeah. Although nowadays I feel it's like the eight-year-old in their smartphone showing the 25-year-old theirs of their ways, given yeah. how fast technology is moving. We can, we can reboot it. The, we can reboot the reboot. Just keep this thing going forever. Right. Uh, reboot it as a young adult novel, and then you'll be able to do it. Oh, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> um, so, yeah, this movie is it's interesting. Uh, some of the queer weird facts about this, the the lead doctor that's in one of the roles, or, or I don't know if he's a doctor in this, he's a... Uh, computer programmer and or war gamer uh, originally was written for uh, John Lennon of the Beatles um, before he did, they turned into someone else. But um, the same guys that wrote this after they did a bunch of cool research, they also did uh, Sneakers, which is like and I know one of your favorite movies. A very underappreciated movie, I think. Usually a movie that's left outside of the typical Robert Redford canon uh, in terms of his greatest movies. But we'll but say good movie. We'll save that for your sneakers podcast. Um, but clearly this movie had left a big impact on people. Uh, there's a cool story that I was read as I found out I was doing research for this. Ronald Reagan watched it at Camp David in June of 83 after a long day debating arms control issues. He uh, used to have a lot of film screenings for his family and staff. And he watched this movie and then a couple days later he bragged about the plot to some democratic congressman that he was needing their help for, for the MX missile program. And he's like, hey, have you guys seen this movie? Let's see what you think about this movie. And he went through the whole thing, and then the Democratic congressman said along some long lines, hey, don't, 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 don't ruin the ending for me. I want to see it too. Uh, but that's kind of interesting because movies are certainly a, a thing that people can interpret how they understand some of these issues. These are really complex things that you need degrees and years of experience working on. It's, movies are a way for people to approach this subject and to get their first understanding of it. And actually, uh, reportedly, the movie was one uh, contributor to federal legislation that would uh, outlaw the auto dialing that you see mm. in the uh, in the early parts of the film due to the technology or computer security concerns. And on the floor of the of the House, I believe it was when they were uh, debating and or voting on the the legislation, uh, members of Congress were actually bringing up the movie and and showing apparently the. Uh, the dire threats that could be uh, created by the by not acting on the legislation. That before Joel goes into the the kind of plot summary of this, to set it set, set the stage. So three years into the Reagan administration is when this movie comes out. The general public has a sense that his administration is a little more aggressive with the Russians than his than his predecessors, and there's a fear that the Cold War and nuclear use can be a reality. Um, people st or still had the experience of the Cuban Missile Crisis. So this is a sense of a fear that this movie taps into, you know, sometimes very funny ways of doing it, um, but also very scary. Some of that, that visual at the very end of the flashing black and white lights and stuff. I remember as a kid scared the heck out of me. And it also was a time when corporations like the, the RAND Corporation, it's a think tank, semi-private, semi-public, that does uh, war planning and strategy simulations. They've been doing it since 1954, and they basically play both sides. They Russians or the Soviets or so the U.S. and the Chinese, and what one side will do and what's the other side going to do, and kind of go back and forth, and you play all these simulations. And then this movie takes place in that and shows a little bit into that. But Joel, you want to talk a little bit about kind of what actually happens in this movie before we actually get into the details? And again, 
everyone that's listening should know that we spoil pretty much everything because that's the only way we can really overanalyze it. Exactly. And get super critical. So the movie starts out with a, uh, a missile launch test by the United States Air Force. Uh, they show methodically the missileers, the military officers that are actually sitting down there in each nuclear missile silo uh, undergoing um, a, a missile test, but they don't know it's a test. So as far as you know at the beginning of the movie, you're actually going through a real missile launch. And so you start to see the, the beads of sweat build on their brows as they start going methodically through the the number crunching and the code uh uh, processing to figure out, okay, these are orders, these are real, we are making this nuclear launcher go. And right at the end, when they're about to launch the missile, one of the missileers says, I can't do it, we can't do it. So there's this very tense moment, comes to find out that it was just a test. And so Ooh. they, yep. And so they cut to the, the adults in the room that we've been talking about, the generals and the, the uh, the bureaucrats who are in the room at NORAD and Cheyenne. Wearing, people wearing medals and vests. Lots of medals and vests. And like holding cigars but never actually smoking them throughout the entire movie. But uh, that's probably a good thing. You don't want to be smoking around a giant missile, I right. guess. But. Well, they also had smoking in the infirmary. So I don't think they maybe weren't concerned about health issues at least. That's true. That's true. So the bureaucrats and the generals are a little uneasy that when push comes to shove, the missileers whose job in their job title is to shoot a missile are incapable psychologically, mentally, however you want to look at it, of launching a nuclear missile. Because obviously they have the knowledge that when they shoot that missile off, it's likely to go to a place that's going to kill hundreds of thousands, likely millions or tens of millions of people. And so in that discussion and in that um, – in the laying of blame to who, who it should be, whether it's the military officers or certain federal bureaucrats, there's a discussion where some of the technologists in the room push a computer solution. They say, effectively, let's take the soldiers out of the loop. Hmm. And instead of having individuals to fire the missile, they have a computer program or a computer system that could actually verify the orders and carry out the launching of the missiles. The red button pushes itself. Exactly. And so I guess, you know, in this uh, technology age where computers are doing more and more things, it gets the green light. And in a pretty funny scene, which I know Tim especially liked, you actually see the military officers who couldn't push or pull the trigger or push the button actually taking their cha chairs out of the room. Uh, as the computer system is being, it's just uh, it's just very sad. It's like you're fired from your job, and you then have to like basically take all your belongings and put them in a box, and then not only that, but like take your chair and move your chair. So if, like if you worked in a factory and you were being replaced by a machine, you then have to like move your desk away so that the machine can get put in there. It's I mean it's pretty sad. They looked, John Spencer like looked into the distance and just shook his head. Like what brave new world are we in and, and what and what am I going to do because my previous job was pushing buttons. What am I going to work at now? Maybe a, a, maybe a telephone switchboard if they still have those things, party lines and, and all that. But no, it, it's it's a sad little visual there. I mean it's kind of a time period that looked like it was a pivot point in, in the military uh, industrial complex and where they were going to do with all this. And I just thought that was a sad scene. Exactly. So how does this turn into the rest of the movie? So we kind of cut to – David Lightman, as played by Matthew Broderick, a very young Matthew Broderick. Uh, it seems some of his classic roles were just when he was getting started. I, I forgot to look up how young he was, but um, you know, looked like he was probably in high school at the time. Uh, David Lightman, uh, alongside his uh, high school love interest, 
Jennifer Mack, played by Ali Sheedy, uh, stumble into their high school computer system to change their grades. Uh, I think it's in their biology class. So uh, Matthew Broderick's character, David, uh, is shown as a very bright kid uh, who has a tendency to um, push back against authority, whether it's the high school teacher uh, or principal. And he's also a video game enthusiast. And so one night when he's trying to uh, hack into a video game company in order to get a sense of what new video games are coming down, he inadvertently hacks into NORAD, which is a key part of the military uh, complex that's keeping us safe at night by um, uh, maintaining our nuclear uh, infrastructure. Yep, listen, and, listening for the incoming bombers, seeing what's going on. Exactly. And inadvertently uh, learns the computer system that had been installed uh, has a series of uh, games or simulations in it and not realizing that he's actually in the military system and uh, doing anything uh, that will threaten actual lives begins to play around with those war simulations because he loves video games. And so he inadvertently starts a global thermonuclear war game simulation, mm -hmm. only that the system, which has the acronym WAPR, can't really differentiate between reality and fiction. And so it moves forward with actually starting up the nuclear infrastructure of the United States, uh, seemingly to fight the Soviets and actually jumpstarts uh, a whole series of steps where nuclear missiles are going to be launched, missiles from subs are going to be launched. Um, Sounds like they just should have played chess. They probably should have just played chess. Now, uh, Matthew Broderick's character, he uh, because he broke into the system, he starts to get tracked down by the military and the FBI. He pleads with them trying to uh, discuss or, or explain to them how he was just trying to have a, uh, a fun game. <laughs> Uh, they seem to think he must be some kind of Soviet, Soviet sympathizer who's been uh, somehow recruited to hack the military. He fits, um, he fits the profile. He's, he's estranged from his parents. He's a bright kid. He doesn't do great in school. and He, he doesn't, doesn't have, have many fr friends. He doesn't have any friends. Oh, man. Except, except also very easily lands the iconic classic 80s girl character pretty much without even trying. Without even trying. Um, so he's able to get away uh, from the military for a short while. He's able to track down the original programmer of the computer system that's now apparently taking over. Uh, and in the end, they are able to get back to, to NORAD uh, just as the uh, Whopper system is about to launch nuclear missiles at the Soviet Union. At that time, you never actually hear from the president, but you keep – uh, seeing people referencing the president on the line on this yellow phone. I would have thought it would be a red phone, but <laughs> apparently at NORAD, it's yellow. And in order to get the Whopper to not launch the missiles, they have the game also start playing tic-tac-toe in order to learn the concept of stalemate. And so you see the iconic... Images, as Tim mentioned, of the, the computer system, black and white images, playing thousands and thousands of games of tic-tac-toe. And then also starts going through nuclear simulations where the computer system soon discovers that, well, if you go through a global thermonuclear war, basically everyone loses, both the United States and the Soviet Union, not to mention the rest of the world. And there's the iconic line from the computer in that uh, HAL-type voice that says the only winning move is not to play classic and that's how we see the movie ending where the computer system realizes that launching or not launching the nuclear strike is the only way to win the game so i always thought that was funny as a kid because the tic-tac-toe game 
I'm I, I you know I, I know a couple things in life, but I, I'm apparently quite dumb when it comes to tic tac toe. And I know that if you know there's certain things you can do, you can always have a stalemate at tic tac toe. But I've never been able to actually do that, and I'm very easily uh, defeated at tic tac toe. So I never understood that particular reference because every time I played tic tac toe with my brother or sister, who are both younger than me, I lost. So I guess I'm not cut out for that particular uh, field. So what you're saying is you should not be in charge of the United States nuclear infrastructure. As Basically as, what you're saying. If it, right if it doesn't now. have, if it has anything to do with tic tac toe, I probably should be st- play Oregon Trail or some other kind of game. Okay. Well, let's get it. Let's get into the weeds here. Um, we have a couple different topics that I think would be really interesting to cover. First of which, we can talk about NORAD. What is NORAD and what it does? Missileers, are there any examples of them actually not doing their job? We talk about is Warper or Whopper, is that a real thing? Is that uh, something that we may have actually used in terms of the computerization of nuclear fighting? Uh, there's a lot of examples of accidents and false alarms that this movie runs through. So this clearly there's some history to this. And then we can kind of finish again with some discussion of war fighting and and what it means. So in terms of NORAD, I think it's fun. It's good movie stuff because they have to be able to simplify things to the general public. But NORAD, I think we know nowadays, is the thing on every round Christmas that tracks Santa Claus that's traveling around the country and the world and seeing exactly where he is at any particular given moment. Ever Uh, vigilant. Very vigilant. So they they keep an eye on him. Uh, But NORAD stood for a couple different things. Uh, It started in 57 through 1981. Uh, It stood for the North American Air Defense Command. And now, since 81, it stands for North American Aerospace Defense Command because they track both space and uh, bombers uh, in the atmosphere and those kind of things. So the big thing about NORAD is fascinating. NORAD only detects incoming attacks. The actual response to those attacks, launching communicating with military bases and telling them what to do like that chain of command and operations are somewhere entirely else. NORAD doesn't do those kind of things. NORAD actually mostly isn't even underground. So they have uh, over at the uh, Peterson air force base, which is somewhat near that area. It's near Colorado Springs, Colorado. Um, The most of their operations take place there, especially since 2006, they don't take place in what they do in the movie, which is the Cheyenne mountain complex, which is near it. It's an alternate complex in case they think Peterson Air Force Base is, is attacked. Um, but so it's actual, a backup. It's a backup. It's not actually where these things take place. But Peterson Air Force Base is not as cool of a visual as the actual tunnel that leads into the right. Cheyenne Mountain Complex, which is really interesting because that same tunnel that they set up, which uh, is about the – at the time, it was the most expensive ever built set of about a million dollars, although they mostly made up what it actually looks like because they didn't, they didn't know what it was and they couldn't take pictures but it's the same tunnel that's in the movie Back to the Future 2, near the end of it, where they're driving through the tunnel on the hoverboard. Uh, it's also the, the entrance to Toontown and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. So the so if the, if the command is is separated, is that mm-hmm. just in at another military installation? Is it yeah, it's uh, at Peterson, Air, Peterson Air Force Base? Like okay. right right now, they refer to it as a skeleton crew um, that's there at the actual Cheyenne Mountain Complex. Uh, it's like a, they call it warm standby, meaning it's only staffed when necessary. It used to be. Uh, many years ago, during the height of the Cold War, about 2,000 personnel worked at that particular facility. Nowadays, it's around 210. Like, it's not where these things take place. Now, if they think Peterson Air Force Base is about to be destroyed, or if it has been destroyed or compromised in some particular way, um, the complex at Cheyenne Mountain can be staffed and used for basically early warning. In the case of an, if there is ever a nuclear war that lasts longer than a couple of minutes mm-hmm. or a day or two, 
that's the kind of stuff where that would take place um, much so, more later on. So the missileers in the, the beginning of the movie, I think it's kind of implied that they're right there at huh. NORAD. Well, the, I, I mean, not knowing anything, yeah. it's kind of it, – it seems like the same technology that's in the NORAD base. And so you know, you kind of visually – at least I did – mentally connected the, you know, the visual nature of it. But I, I assume actually you know, the silo could have been – Four states away or – Well, so I don't know exactly if they say where it is. It starts out with they're very cold and they're snowy and they have to kind of drive to wherever they're going to. But um, those places are usually located like in Montana and uh, in, in the Dakotas and Wyoming. Those are kind of where we have our, our missile silos. These are – right now we have about 450 that are able to be filled. That's set by um, arms control agreements. I've met some of these people that actually – sit in the in the silos and they are tend to be not like they are in this movie where you guys got in like their 40s these are kids that are air force um personnel that are like in their early 20s bright-eyed and bushy-tailed bright-eyed bushy-tailed and also but they work really hard i mean this is a really difficult job they have to go through uh months in training usually they do about a four-year rotation they'll spend a year away from their families uh and do 25 days on 25 days off in terms of actually being down in, in the in the missile silo, and they'll sit there. And what's there. the shift? The sh- uh, I don't know what the shifts are. I mean, they they it's a long time. Um, yeah. They do twenty five days where they're actually there on, yeah, yeah. on site and to be able to work through this stuff. It's... And they get pretty bored. There's a really great article that Wired magazine put out in about 2011. It's called "In Nuclear Silos, Death Wears a Snuggie," because it talks about like you imagine you're under this underground for such a long period of time, and you're trying to figure out what to do to occupy your time. Um, and it's also cold down there. And these are this weird juxtaposition between you have your responsibility to launch a nuclear attack against someone no pressure. killed. No pressure. No pressure. But also you're bored and you're trying to figure out what you want to do to occupy your time. And there's a great quote here that the guy who was there and he says, I, I've spent long, quiet hours with, the, with dimmed lights, reading, monitoring the status of the missiles, watching DVDs like Lost in Entourage, and fighting a growing sense of boredom, containment, and isolation. I, I just visualize, would I rather, when they actually have to make the decisions about launching the nuclear uh, apocalypse, would I have wanted them to have been watching Lost or Entourage <laughs> in the prior five minutes? Like, what kind of mental mindset? I'm probably thinking Entourage would probably be a better mindset than Lost when, you know, you just spend the entire time feeling lost about what's going on in the world but. right well i mean also imagine if you're just like right in the middle of the mystery of lost like at the particular right. maybe it's this season finale oh and man come on the alarm goes off and you're like no i need to know what five minutes i need five minutes or or it's pretty or it's pretty introspective because the point of this second season was what's in the bunker yeah. like what's in the hatch yeah i'm in the hatch am i in that bunker maybe it's just a nuclear launch it merely makes your brain think um but that was kind of some of the, the life that those People live uh, in those particular places, but that's not at NORAD. NORAD is a place that checks for incoming missiles. It's handled a lot elsewhere um, where the actual launching takes place, which I found really interesting that the quick decision the military makes to be able to put Joshua or or Whopper in charge of um, firing the missiles, it's a little dangerous to think about because right now the Soviets, if they wanted to destroy – before Whopper gets placed in – for them to destroy all of the launchers, people who actually fire the missile silos, those 450, they'd have to hit all of them. Because each of those, there's usually a person in charge of a number of different silos, and they're like based far enough away that one nuclear bomb couldn't destroy more than one of them. 
which means the Soviets would have to put multiple bombs on those targets. And there's a chance that each of those bombs may not actually reach their target, forces them to fire a larger number of their arsenal to actually destroy um, those targets so that they won't fire back at them. So otherwise, if the Soviets find out that Whopper is in NORAD in its one place, where if you take out that one place, you can't fire your missiles anymore, yeah, there'd be a huge incentive to be able to launch everything you have very quickly in a sneak right. attack at that one location, which is why they don't do it the way that they do it. Yeah, it cuts against the whole redundancy of having distributed yeah. launching. I sites. mean, there's always still submarines and bombers out there, but in terms of knocking out the missile silos, that's a pretty big deal because that's why we have the triad. Uh, the theory is is that each of those individual pieces has this unique contribution to our deterrent. And that silos um, in that particular piece, they're, they're cheap to maintain once you actually have them, and they're easy, dispersed enough that it's pretty hard to actually hit them. The NORAD is one place. It, it monitors a lot of things, you know, satellites and radar, uh, but there's also other ways that they verify these kind of individual things. It's not just at NORAD, but NORAD's the kind of point where it's the first line of defense in terms of figuring out what's happening to you, and those decisions are made somewhere else. But not for the movie. It has to take place all in one spot, which is fine enough to be able to understand it. I mean, it was an expensive set, so you, you know. You put the money into We're it. We're not building another one. <laughs> um, or, or casting a president. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I guess it would be Reagan at that time, because they do, they do recognize that they have a picture of Reagan up next to the, the DEF CON signals, um, so they couldn't get a Reagan lookalike. Yeah. I think that's a perennial uh, hallmark of any kind of uh, military government uh, focused movie where you have to have the the photos of the president and mm-hmm. vice president up on the wall because it helps orient the the audience. Oh right, this is like a government installation. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who who's who's president at the time? Where are we at? All that kind of good stuff. Um, but so based off of that, like so, then the next question is is missileers? Are there any examples of them not actually pushing the button? Um, and yeah, I mean this is something that's happened before. Uh, these people have to go through pretty intense psychological screenings, and they go through drills, lots and lots and lots of drills of running through simulations, and they do these kind of test um, launches all the time to find out what people actually do. Uh, but it's it's really interesting because there since nine eleven there is a real debate about what the morale is of those individuals, those early twenty somethings or people throughout the entirety of the the nuclear complex about what they feel their mission is. Is it valued? Because since 9-11 and since the end of the Cold War, nuclear weapons, they seem like something in the past. So when you're assigned as a young 20-something, someone who's very eager to be involved in, in Air Force operations, and you're assigned to sit in a missile silo for a year, four years. Not exactly what you're thinking of. Not exciting. So then mm-hmm. people may slack off. There was a big controversy in 2007 of a number of people in a particular missileer wing um, cheating on aptitude tests, uh, pretty serious things. Cause they run through lots of tests about, you know, sometimes it's basic information that they get tested on, uh, cause they want to see what response rates are or specific things about what their day-to-day operations and procedures are. And you have to score like a 90% to be able to continue on. And people weren't able to cut the, cut the grade. So they, there was accusations of cheating and people were fired. The, there's examples of the missile silo doors, um, not being able to close. Because there's like blast doors that are supposed to prevent, if there's an attack, that the missileers will still be protected so they can still go out their operation in case the silo is not destroyed. That those doors can't close because they're old and they're not maintained well. There's a classic example that people talk about. Allegedly, the wrench that you needed to be able to open up the missile and then take out the warhead and put the warhead back in, there was only one of those for the entire country. 
So they used to FedEx it between the different missile sites, and they could never find out where it was. Those are kind of some serious – So it's like the wrench in some IKEA furniture setup. It's like, where did that one thing go? I need that. The whole thing rests on that one little wrench. And and everything's in a foreign language, and there's like weird diagrams, and they can't figure out what's going on. That it's frustrating. What are we going to do? It's frustrating. So, but those are those are some of the things. But it's also examples of not pushing the button. There's this famous example in uh, in Okinawa. Uh, there was an order to fire um, their missiles, and the, some of the commanders that were on base locally there set, thought that this was something was wrong about it. So they brought in, um, they refused the order that they thought was a real order, and then brought guns into the equation, and it was a whole controversial setup. And and these are kind of the things that people think about, like. You have perfect technology. Let's assume you have a missile that will actually fire. You have a warhead that will go off, but you still have that chain of command that you need to go through of who to individual push the button. So within the world of war games, it makes sense to that person who recommended to take the human element out of it. But it's certainly a debate that people have had. You don't want one person at any stage in this process to be able to start a nuclear war. You want lots of checks and balances, uh, and that's why you have these individuals and humans there. For other reasons, too. Like I said earlier, you don't want one missile that takes out NORAD to, to mean we no longer can launch any more of our stuff. You want that stuff dispersed, but you also want it not just dispersed so that a local commander in one place has the access to the launch codes and can fire if they want to, if they feel like it, an unauthorized launch, essentially. You want to be able to control that process. So it would be interesting to think about you know, what is the, the right balance of training for these folks because i mean it seemed like in the in the movie when you see john spencer who starts like sweating a ton <laughs> which you know that makes sense if you think like you're actually about to launch the uh-huh. you know missile that's going to kill tens of millions of people like is this for real is this for real what, which what, is you know? funny because it's it's an it's an example uh, in contrast to that wired story that i read earlier where the guys actually wear snuggies because it's so right. cold down there right so it's but, like 23 hours in uh you know of boredom and then maybe an hour of excitement but i, I was just thinking so would it actually be better if they had to do in order to to psychologically prime them for actually pushing the button you know what if you started doing trainings often so that you get to the point where you're just pressing the button all the time and so the actual time in which you need to press the button for real you don't even realize you know that that's not a training simulation Mm -hmm. and so but the the other side of that is that you might get someone so uh accustomed to to pressing the button that they may you may want them to feel the like the impact of their actions it's, and not get them yeah, lazy in terms of being so ready to press the button. It seems like it's a tough balance. Um, it's the same thing when you have a, when you train someone in the military, you want to train them so that they don't question orders. They want you and you want, but you also want them to be creative on the battlefield. If a scenario comes up and they, uh, their, their normal planning doesn't work, then they have to be able to come up with a creative solution. But you also want them to not always coming up with creative solutions because there's a set understanding in a procedure that everybody knows and can understand and then that's what keeps them alive and and allows them to be able to accomplish the mission so it's not just a challenge that's in nuclear silos and nuclear missileers it's something that everybody has kind of been going through and having to work with so yeah it's a it's a tough balance there and i think it's one of the questions that that strategy and planning has to integrate because they can't just plan for if we fire x number of missiles at these number of locations it'll be fine they have to also understand the, that there's a chain of command and a chain of operations that they have to maintain as well. 
So yeah, so one of the next things we can talk about is uh, accidents and false alarms and those kind of things. Has that something that, that's occurred before in the past? Uh, and it definitely has. It's kind of very scary. There's lots of examples of false no alarms. Pressure. No pressure. No pressure. Lots of examples of uh, false alarms that have come up both in the United States and in the Soviet Union and in Russia after the end of the Cold War. Um, but there's some good Cold War examples. There's an example of a guy named, uh, and I'm, I don't speak Russian, but it's uh, Vasily um, Arkhipov. Arkhipov? Um, sure. Sure. But he was the one of the second in command of a submarine, uh, the a, a B-59 submarine, and he refused to authorize the captain's orders to use nuclear torpedoes during the Cuban Missile Crisis. So an already pretty heightened time. He was told that this is the orders that they need to be able to go through with. The captain thought that war had already broken out and that he wanted to be able to get into the game, to start playing that game um, that we that we were offered to in that, that Whopper authorized us to be able to play. Um, he wanted to be able to get into that. So but Vasily was one of three officers that they needed to vote yes to be able to actually go through the process. And because he was had a lot of confidence and he was well-respected by the rest of his um, – submarine crew because he was one of the guys that was involved in the k-19 widowmaker event um people trusted him and when he said no let's hold off he was turned out to be a hero he turned out to be right um but there's another big example is in 1995 the norwegian rocket case um this is broken into a lot of people uh that aren't even interested in this have heard about this uh, it looked like a u.s trident missile was being launched against the soviet union and they were on high alert. Uh, Russian is one of the only times that the a nuclear suitcase, the actual thing that the president uses to active to authorize the launch, was the only time the ever football. the football, the only time ever that this was activated and turned on and getting ready to go. Um, Boris Yeltsin had activated it, but they held off for a little while, and it turns out that it was just a Norwegian rocket that was going to launch up something to study the uh, Aurora's Borealis. Uh, but it happened – they didn't see where the launch was happening even though the Soviet Union was un, was basically told weeks earlier that this was something that was going to happen. People tend to do that when you launch up a commercial satellite. You tell everybody, don't worry. It's just a commercial satellite. Don't mind us. Don't mind us. Um, but that no didn't make it – it didn't make it up the chain. So they took a while to actually see it because all they saw was a rocket that looks like an ICBM because they're very similar in terms of the stages that are launched and go off. They saw it going over that same path that it would be – a missile that would be targeting Russian homeland. And then eventually they figured out what it was and they de-escalated. But that was a pretty scary time. It got, seemed like it was very close to Yeltsin actually activating the system. Um, but it's not just them and other people that have made these mistakes. The United States has made a number of these mistakes before too. Something in the 1950s, we raised the alert levels um, in the U.S. strategic nuclear forces after seeing what we thought were slow-moving bombers that were coming from Russia over Canada and about to hit the United States. The U.S. officer that was on duty at that time called his counterpart in Russia to say, what's up? What's going on there? That that was a very breaking, broken protocol kind of situation. They're not supposed to call their counterparts in the middle of this because the counterpart, if they're actually the launch, is going to be like, hey, are you trying to kill us? Um, yeah, everything's fine. No problem yeah. yet. Everything's fine. Um, but he called and he found out what was going on. It turns out it was a huge flock of migrating geese that had triggered the ground-based uh, radar system. Once again, advanced technology. Advanced technology. Way ahead of its time. Yeah. So that's very scary. Um, the Russian officer who took the call was disciplined for breaking protocol. 
I don't know if he was uh, sacked or sent to Siberia or anything, but he broke protocol, but he saved uh, a war from starting. Um, another final example that I'll mention, it's, this, is, this one in particular is pretty scary. Um, November 1979, we accidentally, and this is at NORAD, um, someone put in a training tape. That's, it's a simulation tape that they run through. We know how this goes, Tim. We run how these drills and we things. We know how this goes. They left that tape in the computer. And it wasn't set for testing mode. It was set for real mode. And signals of an attack. I could just envision there's a giant switch that says testing, not test, and real. Switch that over. And make sure to do it. Like turn off the lights before you leave. People freaked out. The signal basically sent out to a a number of different stations. And the various uh, bomber wings were scrambled. People freaked out about this. But again, they couldn't figure out because they tried to cross-verify it with other satellites, and the satellites weren't picking anything up. But the SNORAD system indicated that there was an incoming launch. It happened twice again in June of 1980. And finally, they figured out um, what happened in this 1980 case. It was the fix the, the tape situation. But in 1980, it turns out it was a defective microchip. Um, they used to have a, an, on the screen, it would say, number of incoming bombers, zero. Number of incoming missiles, zero. Very reassuring. This microchip, defective microchip, put a two instead of a zero in a number of different places. So sometimes it said two incoming bombers. Other times it said 200. Then one time it said 2,200 incoming missiles. That's exactly the number that it would be for a Russian strike. So they eventually figured it out and uh, replaced the microchip for 49 cents. 49 cent microchip. They replaced it and then everything kind of started working again. But that's pretty scary. Um, so, but so with all these, you know, errors. I mean, again, as 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 the movie goer, I'm thinking, okay, we've made progress. We've got the iPhone or Android <laughs> phone, you know, depending on your preference. Uh, you know, we've got real time communications. We, you know, we've got all our Jason Bourne movies where it looks mm-hmm. like we can instantaneously confirm every little. And you know, I can get real time video. I need CCTV any, on that. Yeah, yeah. Or not to mention, oh yeah, we've got a satellite over that. Yeah, I'll get you real time video right now. Of what's going on uh, at you know a, a three foot you know uh, distance or whatever? I can I can find a quarter on on a street somewhere in Jakarta or read something. a license plate on a car. Yeah. So I mean, do you think that? What we feel is meaningful progress technologically, you know, cuts out a lot of the the potential for these types of of problems. Or, you know, one would think there are other ways for problems to to show up, especially with kind of dated technology. Mm -hmm. But one would hope that some of that technology has made its way over into protecting our nuclear arsenal. I mean, that's a good question. Can technology solve for these kind of issues, prevent accidents from ever occurring? Well, the technology that we had since the dawn of the nuclear age, every decade, we thought it was the most advanced technology around. And at the time, it probably was. But the general public may look back uh, at the analog systems, the Commodore 64s, the vacuum tube computers, and basically laugh at how obsolete it is. But, however, a great deal of our nuclear weapons technology today is still decades old. It's still analog systems, especially in missile silos. But there's a reason for this. CBS 60 Minutes did a great segment on this in April of 2014. Essentially, the missiles have gone through many different updates. The Minuteman 1 missile system was created and deployed for 1962. The Minuteman 2 system, which was 
fairly quickly turn around 1967 when it was deployed had a lot of advances even back then better motors guidance systems um penetration aids to be able to defeat missile defense systems larger warheads minuteman 3 system which is the ones we have now although they're those were deployed in 1970 we're going through another cycle right now to be able to do the minuteman 4 the minuteman 3 systems introduced mervs uh, better onboard flight computers, better motors, can travel further. The warheads themselves got better safety features so they would not explode when you didn't want them to. But throughout this process, the silos themselves still relied on older technology. And the reasoning given by Major General Jack Weinstein to 60 Minutes was that the proven, reliable, and simple technology of the Cold War has proven to be resilient to cyber attacks outside forces, and general IT hiccups that you see even at your computer at work. Something that we're quite concerned about today, and even more concerned about when Matthew Broderick had a computer and he was dialing in. Missileers today even still use 8-inch floppy disks to be able to manage launch commands. Now, of course, there are still upgrades happening. In 2014, $19 million went into upgrading the system, but Rightly so, the U.S. Strategic Command is cautious about the pace of change because the goal is a simple system that is strong against attacks, both cyber attacks or as well as kinetic attacks, conventional nuclear bombs going off. You want to be able to make sure that that system works because if deterrence breaks down, if war starts, you want to make sure these things actually can be used. If an adversary doubts your command and control system, they might be more willing to risk a surprise attack. If they think your pants are being caught down and your system won't work because they only need a little bit of a delay. If a missile takes 30 minutes to get from Russia to the United States, if there's a delay of 15 to 20 minutes there, a missile silo may be taken out. And they'll be more likely to actually start a war if they think they can win it. But it's still pretty funny that the DVD player that the missileers use to show Season 2 of Lost is more advanced than the floppy disks that hold the launch commands. But beyond technology... There's still human element. There's still the idea that interpretations can, can happen incorrectly, whether or not the information may be displayed correctly, but it might be interpreted wrong. Or someone might just be foolish and forget, forget to put in the right tape. So can better technology prevent accidents? It definitely helps. But there's always the risk of accidents, and those are the things that you calculate when you have a nuclear deterrent. All right, so let's let's talk a little bit about the the Whopper itself. Um, Whopper the, the Trap World one or the well, because they let's get a double Whopper. Well, the Whopper Triple? the Whopper is funny because the the director said that the term that he was that we use for these somewhat similar things, um, and this is just from the, what the director said. He didn't like the term psyop. It's what we used to call our single integrated operational plan. It's the set of targets that we've agreed to after a long series of, of negotiations and meetings and that have worked their way up from the president sets the guidance and it goes through the Joint Chiefs and the military and the Pentagon has all these different inputs into it. But it's a, it's a set of targets. It says if we're under attack, here's the places that we'll actually hit with what weapons and what sequencing of things and what we'll leave in reserve. And like that whole process was called the PSYOP. Now it's called – Something tells me they need some kind of marketing person to, to sit down and be like, well, all right, I got some acronym ideas. Let's work through The this. military loves their acronyms, and the director did not like PSYOP, which has nothing to do with computers. They use computers to simulate the scenarios that then are used to feed into the PSYOP plan. But 
the director thought PSYOP was boring and vague, so he wanted to come up with something that sounded, and I'm not kidding, like Whopper, like a burger, or a WAP, like a mistake. or Which it, stands for War Operation Plan Response Whopper. Whopper. It's pretty funny. Coming to a defense installation near you. <laughs> it's a big box that has lots of blinking lights, and it's very scary of what it says on there. Um, but the blinking lights, which I don't really know what they do, but they're – Well, I think it's standard uh, movie procedure. If you want to make it more menacing, you just add more lights. Add more it. lights, and yeah. the lights can blink faster when the crises In different ways. On. Some are slow blinking. Mm-hmm. Some are fast blinking. It's, that like, just shows, it's like the lights oh, that blink on Darth Vader's not nest. Good. It's it was, not good. not good. Don't yeah. know what it is, but it's not good. We don't know what it is. Um, but it's you know it's scary. It's good movie stuff. Um, but so the Whopper, it's yeah, it's you know it's a computer that it was used for originally. It's it seems like simulations of war fighting, which is something that we actually used to do uh, in the 1950s. There was a goal of coordinating air defense against Soviet bombers because you have to do lots of different steps along that process. You see the incoming Soviet bombers. You have to know where they are. You have to know what assets you have. On your side to be able to shoot them down, whether it's um, whether it's anti-air guns that can shoot things out of the sky, or you want to be able to scramble jets to be able to knock them down, like that takes a lot of coordination uh, to be able to do that. So, in the '40s, they tried to do um, they had this computer called the the INAC, the E N I A C, which was used to determine the trajectory of incoming. Uh, artillery and anti-aircraft shells. It was one of the first ways of the electronic digital communication for these process. They would see what was coming incoming and then try to predict where it was going to land, essentially. Um, and then that was used later at Los Alamos on thermonuclear bomb calculations. So you can see slowly more computers being involved in this particular process. Um, MIT made a computer what they called the Whirlwind. It was used to help with automating air defense and emer- emer- emergency warning uh, plans and, and strategy in real time. And that led to the wonderful acronym of the Semi-Automatic Ground Environment, or SAGE. Very smart. Ooh. SAGE. To coordinate. Someone paid for marketing. Yep. They, they, that, that, that budget was clearly covered. Uh, to, and this was used to coordinate air defense against incoming bombers. Very early computer network, one of the first um, in, the, in the United States. Uh, and these were huge complexes. These were things that were over half an acre f- of floor space to be able to, for, to use the all, where all the servers were in the operation. Huge computers, not the, the Mac. They weren't MacBook Airs. Um, Although probably now you could fit their computing power into a MacBook. It's crazy. Yeah. But humans were still involved in the decision whether or not to shoot. Um, and some of the director of war games, they talked with some of these people who were involved in the, at the Stanford Research Institute who ran war games for the United States, uh, for the U.S. military. And the screenwriters talked with one of the consultants there, a guy named Peter Schwartz, who later clued them into the ideas of linking the topics of the movie. Young people, the military, games, uh, computers, space, war. So, yes, computers were helpful in the simulation process of this, but they never really took the human element out of the actual firing. Obviously, computers do the firing, but it takes a human to, at multiple steps in this process, to move it to the next level. Although in in the Soviet Union, they had a thing in a movie I'm sure we're going to get to. It's it's the the theme from that particular movie's bombing run is our is our own podcast theme, Doctor Strangelove. In that movie, you talk they talked about the doomsday machine, the thing that if the United States hit a bomb in Russia, it would trigger automatically. It was out of the control of a human being. 
the old example that people use in, in wargaming is people playing chicken on a road, a single lane road, two cars coming at each other. You want to tell the other person and convince them that you aren't going to swerve left or right. They need to swerve. They need to move. Well, one of the ways to do it is to take the steering wheel out of the car and throw it out the window because now it's out of your hands. You don't have any control over it. They already have control. They need to be able to maneuver this. The Soviet Union took that idea and created something they called dead hand. If it looked like they were about to lose a war and all of the people who were needing to be authorizing the different switches to turn on and launch this process would turn on dead hand and it was out of their control. If dead hands systems of like seismic monitoring, air monitoring indicated an airburst of a nuclear war head firing somewhere, wherever these monitoring stations were, it would launch a series of missiles automatically with no human control. That certainly was something that existed. Um, but it's really fascinating that uh, the movie took this to the next level and that kind of scary element of when humans were no longer in control. And you see the the general that's there um, was pretty scared. And he's based on a real person that the writers talked with. Uh, James Hartinger was inspiration. He was talking about how freaky he freaked out he was that machines were taking over. So, Tim, let, let's move on to just the notion of nuclear war fighting. Uh, you know, I think generally most people understand that the Cold War is no longer, that we're, we're not exactly – uh, ever vigilant that that some evil empire is going to strike and send a thousand bombs raining down on us, and so we have to be ready at a moment's notice. Uh, that generally we have a nuclear stockpile in order to deter other people from you know attacking us, uh, and it's not exactly a a first strike issue. But if we are getting into the situation, well, so if we're if we're focusing on maintaining the stockpile. Uh, and, and the focus is there and not so much on winning because as we found out from the movie, the only way to win is, is not to play. So how does one think about in today's climate about fighting a nuclear war? This is a debate that's been going on since we first had nuclear weapons. When we were the only ones that had them, nuclear weapons were just part of our conventional force. There wasn't that distinction. They were very powerful weapons that were not – they were unique in their scale but not unique in their planning about how you integrate them into your, the rest of your war plans. We just said if we were ever got in a fighting war in a conventional sense, we would use nuclear weapons to take out the Russian military in different strategic places. And that was so it was, it was part of war fighting. Then eventually it took a long amount of time. It took the Soviet Union also having a deliverable force and a deliverable second strike force, meaning we would hit them first. They would have, still have stuff left in reserve to hit us back, which would then deter us from doing an attack in the first place. Once that process got basically set up. In addition to the anti-nuclear freeze movement uh, in the United States and Europe, those protests against nuclear weapons and nuclear war, a lot of these things combined to create what was called the nuclear taboo against the use of nuclear weapons. So as a concept that we'll talk about later on in other movies, um, but it's a, something that has basically pushed the idea of war fighting in the, public's, in the public's view to something that's unthinkable. But the military's goal and mission is to win a war. So with the people who are involved in the planning of this process, even though the deterrence is the first primary use of our weapons, is to deter a strike against the United States in a nuclear sense, it's not for war fighting. But the motto I often hear from people who talk about this is deterrence is the primary goal. However, if deterrence fails, we have plans to fight a nuclear war and to win it. And they usually define winning by being able to be hit 
by a number of weapons, but still have enough to be able to knock out others uh, from attacking us again. So if it's Russia, for example, it's harder because they have a great number of, of silo sites. A lot of their stuff is mobile, on mobile rails and on, on mobile platforms, on trucks. So we don't know exactly where they are at any given point. So that makes it harder, but the winning point is you knock out as many as you can that you know where they are so that if you have to engage in a sustained attack back and forth, they have fewer things to hit you with. Fewer cities of yours being lost, fewer military installations of yours being lost before you're able to go back and forth, and you engage in that process, and eventually there's an attrition and the other side gives up. And you have enough population and industry that That's you can winning. cover. That's winning a full-scale nuclear war. But there's also discussions about smaller nuclear wars. Um, Essentially, which seems like an oxymoron. It is, but I mean, that's it's a it's a concept. So, the oftentimes you have this discussion and you hear about terms like damage limitation. You want to, if you're engaged in a shooting war with the Chinese, for example, over Taiwan, there's a crisis that happens. It looks like Taiwan is going to be, um, I guess, liberated in that sense. China feels that it needs to. It's such an important part of their identity. They need to be able to keep Taiwan as part of China. So deter to the United States, they threaten taking out Los Angeles. And then they say, how important is Taiwan to you? Is Will you be willing to trade Los Angeles for Taipei um, or Taipei for Seattle? Are you willing to make that case? And they have all these options of, of, of doing those small attacks. So then are we then held hostage in an, our decision-making process because we don't want to start a full-scale nuclear war? Or do we come up with limited strikes? We know – that the Chinese have around 60 ICBMs that can reach the United States. 60 is a number that we can probably hit uh, if we know where they all are, and we can actually hit, if they're in silos, we can know where to hit them, although a lot of their stuff, they've since, because of this vulnerability, have moved them into mountains. And there's lots of different cave entrances to these mountains, and we have to be able to know where they all are and hit them before they're able to come out of the mountain, put up the launching system, and launch it at the United States. And then make it past a missile defense system that we may have. So damage limitation people talk about, well, if we think a war is going to happen, what can we do to fight it so that it has the least impact on the United States? So these kind of discussions, someone in the military or in a nuclear strategist might say it's winning to knock out 56% of the Chinese missile systems. And then the remaining 44% come at the United States, well, a number of those will miss. A number of those will be duds. A number of those will be knocked out by U.S. national missile defense. So a smaller percentage of that will hit somewhere, and we'll survive that. We'll be able to ride out that particular attack. That's a win, even though we lost Los Angeles, Seattle, San Francisco. So that's a question. So it really is fascinating in the movie War Games when it says, winner, none, what does that mean? The computer, the whopper. Um, its job is to run nuclear war simulations. So apparently in the movie they reference the fact that it's done this thing thousands and thousands of times. Has it not yet realized that nuclear war under its categories, no one can win? It's weird that it runs simulations as a job but doesn't already know that if you run a simulation, it won't work. So that doesn't mean – Well, and it's funny. They, they mention – so when the high school students are able to track down the programmer – uh, the guy who who originally made the the system and named it after his his young son Joshua, he even mentions in the in their you know back and forth about you know the quick two minutes they have to explain his his justification for leaving the the NORAD center was that he could never 
get the computer to learn basically the issue of mm. stalemate. Like he, he he said, I could get the system to calculate all of the you know all the the casualties and the people dying, but I couldn't get the computer system to understand the implications of it. Of you know why global thermonuclear war is not just a win and lose situation that well, everyone it, loses. It is it is quite a good metaphor for people that are interested in in nuclear war fighting and planning and and definitions of what it means to win one of those particular conflicts. Like it mentions, what is the point of the game? What is the primary objective of of Joshua's programming? And it's to win the game. Like what does it mean to win a nuclear war? McNamara. Um, said it was assured destruction if we could destroy 30% of the population of the Soviets, 50% of its industry, and 150 cities, that that would be enough to win that particular battle. Although that assumes that whatever you're doing to the Soviets doesn't provoke a response or that you, you're you going to have to feel it to yourself too. So is it winning to do that to the Soviets but then also have the same number or more done to you? Is that a win? Um, if a missile is already incoming and you're sure that it's incoming, how do you win that particular scenario? Do you try to knock out more of the weapons that are that might be launched in the future? Because all the silos that are that are there, the submarines, the bombers, they can always turn back and reload more warheads and more missiles and then do it again. So is winning to prevent another strike? Like, you know, it's like those kind of questions are real questions that people come up with when it comes to warfighting. So the idea when Joshua says during each of his simulations that there's no winner, I mean, I'm curious about what they mean. Like, who programmed the win? Like, what does it mean to win? Right. Like, Joel, what do you think? Like, to win a nuclear war, what does that, what does that mean? No, that's a good question because, I, I mean, I think the – when most of us understand or at least all the movies that I've seen, again, as a, a completely ignorant person on, on the actual military side of this, you know, you always see nuclear weapons being targeted at. New York, Washington, D.C., uh, Los Angeles, you know, mm -hmm. large population centers. And so you, you imagine in a global thermonuclear war scenario, basically all la large population centers are, are destroyed, right? And so, you know, is if 85%, I, I think at one point in the, in the movie they were talking about casualty rates and they talk about 85% or something like that of, of population centers. So, you know, winning is basically basic survival in 10% of the country. Yeah, you know, it's not it's, exactly a winning scenario. It's all relative, I guess. I mean, because it's things too. Like there's different types of, we'll talk about it a little later on, but there's different types of targeting. You either target cities, you can target military installations, so things like the other side's nuclear arsenal, or its ability to enact war, conventional war, if you're engaged in that type of a conflict. Uh, like, what are the things that the Soviets hold valuable? Do they hold cities and their populations valuable there some people in the u.s that said no you know stalin doesn't care about his people he'd be willing to trade good number of them or mao would be willing to trade millions of his own population so then what do you target do you target the military that's might be what they value or they target their resort homes and the things that they spend their time in you know in, in the black sea like is that something that might be valuable that you won't want to hold at risk so th these are the questions that people think about when it means to win or lose a war. And also, you have to assume that if you're engaged in a nuclear conflict, you might also be engaged in a conventional one as well. So then you have to put all of those individual pieces into it because all those things are integrated. Yeah. So the interesting thing uh, in when they're going through that learning phase or Joshua's – the Whopper is, is going through its scenarios, 
you know, you see all the, I guess, code names or, or descriptors for each of those scenarios and they reference, you know, specific, I think Zaire and different countries or different seas or channels or, or different things, which probably, you know, they, they're referencing particular strategic scenarios where like waterways are cut off or something like that, which, which made me think, because if, if you're watching the graphics of the, the simulation, everything leads to all the bombs being dropped. Yeah, so you, you see like one bomb go off and another one bomb. And then very quickly, seconds later, everything goes over. And, and I think that further reinforces kind of popular wisdom these days amongst a lot of people where there's, if a nuclear weapon is involved, you can't help but get to that point. You're, if you're going back and forth, the nuclear weapon will always be used in that kind of mutually assured destruction. You know, it, there's, there's some fatalism there that you yeah. can't help but get to that last straw. A lot of military planners, everyone. a lot of military planners would not assume that a limited nuclear strike would escalate. There's a lot of people on, on the other side of that that would say, no, if you trade nuclear weapons, the public's demand for retaliation will lead to further escalation. Like These are questions that are, are really um, debated by a lot of different groups. Um, I personally think that most, <laughs> most exchanges would probably escalate to a larger degree, but it depends on what's hit. It depends on if you only hit military installations, if you – say, hit uh, an Air Force base here and you take out um, an Army installation over here, then as the attacker, you can claim, we're done. We're not going to do anymore. Back off. Surrender. But if you attack and you target the president uh, of, of another country... Or, or capital you, city... Or if you attack an important center. city um, or if you attack someone's command and control system, then they're more vulnerable to thinking that this is going to lead to further attacks. So we used to have agreements where we wouldn't target command and control systems of another country or the presidents of a president or leadership of another country because if you would take that person out, then they're more at risk to launch all of their weapons because if you take out the leadership and now that leadership no longer can make a retaliatory strike um, possible, then they can no longer respond and you're more likely then to actually use the weapons in the first place. It makes the unthinkable thinkable. So those are kind of those uh, debates that people have about whether or not things would escalate. But you mentioned that, that list of things that would pop up, the different war scenarios that Joshua ran, and I think some of them are funny. I, I found a list of them online. Um, a lot of them were misspelled, so it looks like they weren't spell-checked when they were running through, although Joshua, his young child, maybe didn't know how to spell some of these words. But it starts out normal. It talks about U.S. first strike, USSR first strike, NATO Warsaw Pact, Far East strategy. Uh, Middle East War, China attack, India-Pakistan War, and like, okay, well, this makes sense. But then it gets goofy, and it has a clearly whoever wrote this has like a love of alliteration. Uh, Atlantic heavy, Turkish decoy, Argentina escalation, Iceland maximize, uh, Sudan surprise, Iceland incident, English escalation, Mexican takeover, the Chad alert, uh, Ethiopian Chad escalation, alert. Chile confrontation, the Polish paramilitary. The Libyan local, Vietnamese retaliation, and it goes on and on and on. The French alliance, the Egyptian surgical, and the the, the frightening Jamaica decoy. I would watch that movie. The Jamaica now, decoy. I would watch that movie. I think uh, hopefully that's what the reboot is in the future. Oh, okay. But like these are maybe the it'll scenarios. turn into a Netflix series instead. <laughs> right. Uh, but think about it. I mean, going back to you know your comment earlier about 
uh, I'm curious in those simulations, what was considered winner or not winning. And I almost wonder if they're trying to, you know, make a comment there about how the computer ran those simulations and didn't learn from it because mm-hmm. it was programmed to know what was winning. It, so if, if, 15% of the country survived, that was a winner, even though I think a lot of people would take a step back and say, well, do we really win if 15% of our country is left? And so by beginning the learning stage at tic-tac-toe, mm-hmm. where the computer thought it knew what winning meant, and then it experiences the stalemate at, in a, on a very basic level, where it's not told that you know a certain percentage of this or that is winning, it then brought about this kernel of an idea of stalemate, which then it applied to its simulations. Well, t- so t- that tic-tac-toe is black and white, right? There's no tie in tic-tac-toe. Right. Well, there's what it's called, it's called a cat's game, right? When there's no one wins. Yeah. Um, you draw or something, along, yep. something like those lines. But so there's, I guess there's a tie in a sense that no one wins, but right. there's no, I won 80% and you won 20%. It's kind of black and white about right. who wins or loses. So, so, so I could see from that why it it could do the nuclear simulations and not learn from it in the sense of taking a step back and saying, oh, the only winning move is not to play Mm -hmm. because by its parameters that by which it was programmed, it did win if it got 15% or if it got 16%, it loses or whatever the percentages might be. So it changed the parameters of its calculations. Right. So it it played. So it took a game without parameters programmed perhaps, or programmed at a very basic level for the computer to learn stalemate as a concept, which then it could apply to all of the other games. But the other aspect of that, too, that I find a little weird is the computer simulation that it was running was the Soviet Union had already attacked the United States. It was already sending bombers and missiles over. Under that scenario, it changes what you would do in response to that. It's not a question of you starting the war. And finding a way to first strike to limit your options and to come out of this ahead by having, you know, 30 cities left. It's these cities are already at risk. Now what do you do? To win that war, then it becomes a question of relative functions. Either in one scenario you do nothing and you lose 90% of everything. Or in one scenario you respond back um, trying to hit as many of their military targets as possible so that the next wave doesn't hit you again and you lose Instead of 90%, you lose 60% or 50%. That seems to be relatively winning. This movie is great, and I, I can go move to on, onto Final Judgments right now. I love this movie. I've always loved this movie, even with all the weirdness that's in it, um, because it acts as a very good metaphor for thinking about what it means to win. Like, Did you like this movie, Joel? No, I did. And, and I think you know, each time you see it, because you know, it's what more than 30 years old at this point, I think, I think the best movies – that depend on technology to drive the story, whether you're talking about Tron or war games, you know, the classic eighties movies where you go in a sense that looks awful, but it's also amazing. It's because they really unearth timeless questions that the the technology is a set piece, but it's not the focus. You know, we can think Mm -hmm. of a lot of movies where the movie is the technology and once the technology moves on, it becomes dated and you don't really care about it anymore. Like Lawnmower Man. <laughs> Look, it's still relevant. Uh, yeah, like a Lawnmower Man. So I, I think the reason why it, it became culturally relevant then and continues to this day, you know, I know a lot of people uh, who, who still love that movie, you still see references to it. It's because, you know, it brought about those questions that you were talking about, about, you know, broader philosophical terms of, 
you know, war, how do we fight war? Uh, mm-hmm. And so the, you know, the, the disc that they're playing with, it's a floppy and, and everyone knows that, oh, that's so old and we don't do that anymore. And hardwiring things, you know, we've got all these great technologies like the iPhone or whatever, but it's still applicable today. I mean, some of the simplest stories are, are still relevant today, regardless of the, the technology. So I, I, I'm glad it's still out there and, and people can still uh, see it. And I think in the end, it's also good because it doesn't try to offer a specific answer. Right. You know, other movies, right. they do take an extra 15, 20 minutes Lord of the Rings style to try to <laughs> let's resolve every question that we well, raise. I mean, it's interesting. If they were to do uh, the next step, like I, I'm, not, I'm not ever going to watch the sequel to this movie. Um, but <laughs> it does not exist. It does not exist except for directed DVD. But I, I – what is the next step? Like, what would they do? Would they just basically shut down Joshua? Is right, because they literally like, roll the credits while they're still celebrating. You know, in every Steven Seagal movie, there's a celebration. Yeah. But then there's another 10, 15 minutes of them doing something. And, you know, what happens to the military people who relied too much on technology? What happens to the people who, you know, hated technology and all it was going to do? What happened? You know, will John, will John Spencer and Michael Madsen get to put their chairs back? Well, the military officers get their chairs back. What will happen next time? So I, I, it's great that the movie raises the questions, which you point out very ably is, are important questions that need to be asked. But then it leaves it up to the audience member to actually try to work through those answers. And I think right. we both would, re- would agree that there, there's somewhere in the middle between no technology and only technology on this question where you find a, a right answer. Which is why I'm willing to forgive most of the nuclear nonsense. Because the only thing that I think is really important to understand is, is that – NORAD is a place that basically just detects incoming attacks, and there isn't just one location at NORAD where they can push buttons and tell people to fire. That the process of the president saying we need to respond and all the number of different agencies and military groups that are involved in that decision-making process and in the implementation of that is very complex, and it's usually going to be under crises when it's happening, there's going to be incoming attacks. So the communication system that's set up for people to talk to each other needs to be hardened. It needs to be protected. And these are questions that I think are very important and policy challenges that are, we are going through even today. Um, whether it's nuclear or not. Or whether it's nuclear you know, or not. It's a natural disaster, yep. small terrorist attack or, or you know, a plane crashes through no terrorist attack. But you know, what happens in the aftermath of the next few hours to deal with it. Exactly. So I think that's really important to understand how mistakes can happen because there's lots of people who are involved in this process and there's a lot of human element that can make mistakes and also computer chips that can be defective and have to be replaced. Um, like there's lots of things that can go wrong and only one of them all, you know, only one example has to ever happen where all these things go wrong and, and we start World War Three. So that was the movie War Games. But what if you want to learn more? Well, we have a couple different books and other types of material to recommend so that you can delve even further into these issues than we did today. And a book which I drew a lot of research for this um, is one that I'll probably going to recommend a thousand times in this podcast uh, by Eric Schlossinger called Command and Control. It, won a, uh, it, was, it was a finalist for a, a Pulitzer Prize. It's a really good look at what the U.S. C- command and control, which is the systems that we go through to be able to maintain the nuclear arsenal and then the line of communications and authorization from the president ordering to an actual launch and then even beyond that. This book is a really good description of all those things. So if you want to look further, I think it's a great place to look for it. 
I'll also put some links to some great articles in the description of this podcast to places where you can learn more about what's the daily life of uh, Mr. Lear in the bottom of that bunker or what are some of the things that inspired and motivated the writers and directors of War Games to bring what we saw on the screen to reality. Thanks for listening. We are working hard to make each episode of this podcast better. But we want to hear from you, too. Uh, do you have any ideas about future episodes? Or you can reach out to us on Facebook.com slash SuperCriticalPodcast. We're also on Twitter at NuclearPodcast. Uh, we can email us as well at SuperCriticalPodcast at gmail.com. And uh, we'll, maybe one of the ideas we might have in the future is to announce what next movie we're going to do ahead of time on either Facebook or Twitter. And you can then be able to submit some questions for us or areas to cover. We would love to hear from you. So, again, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it.